0: Hello and welcome to the Third Sector podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, senior features and analysis writer. And I'm Emily Burt,
1: editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector.
0: Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we're discussing the future of charity fundraising
1: telethons and we'll also be bringing you our coronavirus care package of good news stories later in the episode.
0: But first, what's the earliest television event you remember? So, like that thing that you knew that everybody had seen, that you were sort of talking about the day after, and you sort of were aware of it being a shared experience, that you were watching it in real time with the rest of the nation?
1: Uh, for me, it was Princess Diana's funeral. Um, I was in Sweden at the time, and I would have been seven years old uh and i uh, i just remember sitting down with my mum and all my brothers and sisters and watching it and knowing that it was very sad but not really knowing anymore because the voiceover was in swedish um which i didn't speak <laughs> but yeah i i, I remember the, the kind of the procession going down the mall that's so, mm. yeah that's
0: my uh rather somber earliest tv memory what about you yeah, I think that's that's definitely up there because I, I remember there being the one minute silence and my little brother being about five at the time and my dad sort of trying to explain to him that we had to be quiet for a minute. <laughs> but then, of course, my brother being five going, why? And my dad being like, try to be silent. I'll explain to you later. And it just, it, it wasn't it kind of, yeah. So yeah, so I, I do remember that. Um, but I think for me, probably it was the, just before that, it was the 1997 election because I think that was about the first time that I worked out the Queen wasn't in charge of the country Sir, uh was when i saw these massive billboards with with john major's face on it and that's all i remember i don't remember the advertising there's john major's face and then there were the uh new labor new danger posters we had like like these eyes looking out of these kind of dark curtains and i wasn't i wasn't really clear what it was but it was quite scary um but then so kind of because i'd seen these posters and because i'd sort of said to mum, well who's that man and she's like he runs the country and i was like not the queen what is this? (laughs) Um, So I kind of, you know, I was sort of interested. And yeah, I just remember the kind of the election coverage and the sort of, I must have been up quite late, because I I remember the sort of celebrations and the things can only get better and that sort of thing. Um, And then we asked around the office, we asked about this. We did. So yeah, Andy Ricketts was the uh, 1979
1: uh, Cup final. The FA Cup final between Arsenal and Manchester United was Andy Ricketts's earliest TV memory.
0: Yeah. And then for Stephen, it was the OJ Simpson car chase, which, yeah, I've never actually seen this. I have no memory of this. Whereas yeah, he was like, oh, no, this is watching this live.
1: I can't stress enough. That it was the most boring car chase in the history of all time <laughs> because it wasn't re- a chase is a very uh, explicit way or like a, I should say a very exaggerated way of describing it because he was crawling along at about 20 miles an hour. And there were just all these, you know, obviously panda cars and helicopters behind him, but it was more like a kind of a cavalcade, a sort of relaxed sort of drive around town rather than a chase um, but yeah, that was a very, very big
0: TV event. IJ yeah. Simpson. So yeah, I mean, this was very much back in the day when, you know, if something was on TV in the evening, everybody was going to sit down and watch it and you would be talking about it the next day at school, right? Like, it, or, you know, absolutely work or whatever, like, yeah. and it was the also a golden age, I
1: golden age. I mean, we're going to potentially dispute the fact that it was a golden age, but it was a big time as well for charity TV telethons. So we're going to talk about that now. Mm-hmm. So according to the Museum of Broadcast Communications in the USA, the first telethon was broadcast by NBC in 1949. It was hosted by Milton Burley and it ran for 16 hours, raising
0: £1.1 for the Damon Runyon Memorial Cancer Fund. That's quite impressive, like $1.1 million was a lot of money in the 40s. Like that's, yeah, that's really impressive. 1949,
1: $1.1 million, not an insubstantial amount of cash. So the first annual telethon then launched in 1950, again in America, for United Cerebral Palsy. In the UK, when you're talking about telethons, it's very likely that the two that leap to mind are Comic Relief and BBC Children in Need. Children in Need launched in 1980, raising £1 and went on to raise a record £68.75 million in 2017. Comic
0: Relief started in 1985 and that was kind of the wild child of the charity world. Like it had some of the biggest names in comedy at the time attached to it. And it had this reputation for edgy, irreverent humour. Um, and the biennial Red Nose Day Telethon has routinely raised more than £70 million ago. And let's be clear, the amount of money being raised by these
1: events isn't bad by any stretch of the imagination. £52 million to tackle poverty and hunger around the world and £37 million to support children who need it. These are very impressive figures. But looking at them realistically and over time, these totals are falling. And that makes sense. The way we watch TV and consume media has changed drastically over the past 10 years. Like you were saying, Rebecca, remember when you were a kid and something interesting was on TV? The following day, everyone would have seen it and there would be lots to talk about. And it was, you know, TV was a kind of a big, big event back in the day. And it was that sense of everyone watching something at the same time. And nowadays, we just don't do that unless it's line of duty. <laughs> um, the, television's not really an event anymore. It's, it's content. And there's also so much to choose from. Maybe just one or two of the major TV channels have dedicated themselves to a telethon this evening. Okay, so that's fine. You can just binge something on Netflix. So with all that in mind, what does that mean for the future of the TV fundraiser? So I did a
0: very quick and dirty, utterly unscientific poll on Twitter this week. (laughs) Um, uh, The best kind of poll. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So uh, we asked fundraisers how they thought telethons were doing. And just 17% said, actually, they're doing fine. Not a problem. 26% said they were on their way out and 57% said they needed to adapt to survive. So, yeah, what would this adaptation look like? Um, uh, In response to our poll, John Dean, who is a professor of politics and sociology at Sheffield Hallam University and who also does research on charities, he initially said, no, they're doing fine. And then he kind of caveated it saying, considering the deep fracturing of how people consume media. Um, So, you know, I asked him whether he thought there were any changes that could be made to deal with that fracturing. And yeah, he said he thought it would be pretty difficult, um, that if charities were to start partnerships with streaming services or social media, that content would be spread out and it wouldn't be a telethon in the same way. Which, yeah, I see what he's saying. And maybe that is kind of the point, right? Um, but he also made a really interesting point um, that there's an issue about age, um, that comic relief and children in need are very much targeted towards children as they can sort of spend two weeks doing build-ups to the uh, to the event uh, during school. Um, and, you know, he points out that he remembers comic relief meaning a lot to him as a child, but he says, I don't know anyone in my age or generation who would watch them or talk about them now. And I have to say, I think the same is true for me. Um, I haven't really engaged with comic relief in the same way since I was much younger. And I think some part of my brain always assumed that was because the content was sort of less good or less interesting. But yeah, actually, there are two variables there, right? Um, The content has changed, but also I'm getting older and, you know, and I don't have kids. So I'm probably actually just falling in between the gap in that marketing, perhaps. I
1: completely agree. I absolutely remember Red Nose Day in school, especially in primary school. And you would have this big build up a week beforehand. Everyone would be going to the corner shop to buy their squeaky, very uncomfortable red noses. And there were slightly different themes to those red noses every single year.
0: Oh, they always, they, they you're right, they weren't actually that comfortable to wear. It's about an hour where you're like, this is great. And then after a while, people start to get these little red marks on their noses. Yeah. The ridges over your nose and you'd be like, my nose hurts. Yeah. And they smelled weird as well. They oh. always smelled like weird and plasticky. And they like, smell yeah.
1: absolutely shocking.
0: Um,
1: But thankfully, Comic Relief now um does fully organic red noses. I should say organic. They're They're made entirely from plant-based material
0: now. So perhaps they smell better than they did back in the 90s you would assume. Here's hoping. Um, although, I mean, obviously cow pats are made entirely from <laughs> organic material and they don't smell great, but you know, you never know. Hopefully, hopefully they do smell less plasticky and weird. That's not what the comic relief red noses are made out no, from now. Absolutely no. And I didn't, I mean, to cast no aspersions on red noses. The Apologies. quality of the
1: comic relief red nose is unparalleled. Please don't hurt as comic relief.
0: Yeah. And no, they do look great. They do look absolutely great. Some of the newer designs. Oh,
1: they're so good. But I actually went back to look at the red nose designs from the late 90s and the early 2000s when I would have been in primary school. And the memories they evoked, it's extraordinary. In 2001, the red nose had a a face and like a little plastic tongue that extended when you squeezed the nose. It went like a party popper. And I just remember in school, so the gift was that not only would everyone be wearing a very uncomfortable, painful red nose on their faces, but you had the additional sensation of all the other kids coming up and squeezing... The red nose on your nose to make the
0: tongue poke out. Yeah, absolutely. I remember those. I remember those. And actually, do you know what the thing is? That is funny. Yes. Like on a on a, and it's quite a childish humour. But yeah, that is that is funny. Uh, and the red nose thing. Like for all we're saying, boy. it is it is it is a good gag. Yeah. And yeah, you know, um, it's it's not sophisticated. It's funny though, and I love it. Um, I also so Emily actually yeah bought up a, a found a web page that has all the kind of red nose designs through the years and my favorite one was uh, a color changing one from the mid 90s so it would go from from yellow to pink to red and that is like proper mid 90s childhood right like color changing technology being like the height of of just coolness like mood rings were such a thing so sophisticated yeah yeah these little rings that can tell you what sort of mood you're in um yeah, cheaper than therapy i guess <laughs> <laughs> get yourself a color changing red nose yeah (laughs) it's mindfulness in a ring um but yeah like they were just like the height of cool when you were when you were like six or seven like yeah they were brilliant um so clearly i think as this as this kind of (laughs) slight deviation (laughs) yeah illustrates um these fundraisers have done a really good job at engaging with children and being part of children's childhood but yet maybe there is a need to find ways to reach out to older different audiences i mean obviously they're the ones that kind of you know that, that that are forking out the money in the end as well.
1: The fundraiser Paul de Gregorio says this is something that telethon organisers are very aware of. Um, He says they know they need to change as viewing habits are changing. They still make lots of money, but it is getting harder. But in the same tweet, he also pointedly included a picture from the One Love Manchester fundraiser, the concert that was held by Ariana Grande and others following the Manchester Arena bombings in 2017. The concert averaged 10.9 million viewers on BBC One, peaking at 14.5 million. And 22.6 million people watched at least three minutes of the programme, making it the UK's most watched television event of 2017. So, you know, that's a very, very fair point. The British Red Cross received £2.35 million in donations during the three-hour concert itself. And the following day, the charity said it had received £10 million since the bombing happened two weeks before. Because this was all part of a wider campaign, it is quite hard to tell whether later donations were prompted by the actual concert or just by the wider outpouring of support for the victims of the bombings. But still, it's not a bad total for something that was pulled together in less than two weeks
0: yeah absolutely and we've had a similar example more recently with the Big Night In which was organised in around a month in April 2020 and raised 27.4 million pounds on the night to support those affected by the pandemic Um, and this was then doubled by the government under a match funding deal so again that's that's pretty impressive in a short space of time so clearly there are times, moments, events that can capture the public's attention and make them want to tune in and be part of something connected whether that's the response to a bombing or a response to you know the pandemic which left us all feeling very disconnected very scared and we wanted to feel together and and maybe these telethon events are part of a coming together there
1: absolutely so Paul de Gregorio's thoughts were that these events needed to follow the audience in
0: terms of both the technology and the viewing platforms and the payment mechanisms that they use Yeah, and that payment mechanisms point is really interesting. So traditionally, a lot of income for these nights has come from text donations, you know, text give to this number to donate £10 or something like that. But the Phone Paid Services Authority, which regulates these kind of payments, said last year that it expects the market to reach saturation and begin to decline in the next few years. and that's actually quite easy to solve and adapt to though in fairness we've got these mechanisms like paypal and other online payment facilities which we didn't have in the past which are just that quick and easy and frictionless it's not like you know the text thing arose in as a response to having to you know physically stop viewing something pick up a phone and read your card number down the phone or you know write a check and pop it in the post and there are so many moments in there where people can get distracted where they can you know change their mind and not give um so yeah the text donations may be on their way out but actually you know i think we are moving with the technology to to find other ways of 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 replacing that as a mechanism
1: i completely agree and there's also this issue about platforms and technologies so if people aren't sitting down to watch live tv what are they doing they're on social media they're on youtube they're streaming their entertainment and they are listening to podcasts like ours hi hi um Oh, dear. Um, and we're seeing charities starting to figure out what this looks like. So in 2017, the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, ran a live broadcast fundraising event. It was four hours long, which is relatively modest by telethon standards. But the key difference is that the event was not broadcast on TV. It was broadcast using Facebook Live. The event allowed the charity to reach fans and supporters on their social media, and it also helped them to open a dialogue around the key issues the ACLU works on. Uh, They were able to ping their supporters with reminders and get them to sign up to be notified when the stream started, which meant that people didn't have to sit down in front of the TV. It was right there on their phones, wherever they were. It also allowed for integration with Facebook donation tools. Again, getting that really frictionless process from the person thinking about donating to actually handing over the money, to the point where it generated more than $52,341 before it even went live. The evening raised more than $500,000 with 250,000 donated directly through Facebook live streams. It reached more than 2 million views and generated thousands of comments, shares and likes. Interesting.
0: Kind of there is there is an alternative there. Um, and, you know, closer to home, a lot of the sketches that Comic Relief produces as part of the live television event do work well as short videos on Facebook. So, for example, during the pandemic, have you seen any any of Staged? Yes. Yeah, it's great. So it's David Tennant and Martin Sheen kind of playing themselves and sort of sending themselves up and sort of talking about being actors. But it's, it's kind of, yeah, it is, it is sort of short sketches and they did a special one for comic relief which worked really well Um, and then there's also no such thing as a fish which is the podcast run by the qi researchers really good podcast and they did a 20 hour podcast recording for comic relief with different celebrities dropping in to join them so that was streamed live on youtube but then smaller chunks of it were also available as podcast episodes and then of course because it's on youtube you can go back and watch it later so again that's really meeting the audience where they are already and you know, not that not it's all about me, but like, yeah. as an example, I didn't see any of the live telethon for Comic Relief this year, but I did engage with that content with, with the No Such Thing as a Fish, with the stage, and I did donate as a result. So as an example, that is working there.
1: Right. And so um, Paul de Gregorio's other interesting comment was that there needs to be a focus on content with no room for filler. The focus there again is not about getting the audience to tune in because there will be some entertaining bits, but also that they get to be part of something as it's happening. And it's it's a good thing to do. Uh, it's about saying here is something really compelling to watch. Oh, and by the way, it's for charity. So
0: do feel free to donate. So the example he gives for this is Stand Up to Cancer, which is a relative newcomer to the market um, that launched in the UK in 2012 and raises money for Cancer Research UK. And like Comic Relief, it has a live event every two years. Um, In 2018, the last time the event was run, it raised 24.6 million. But it also does stuff in its off years. So in 2019, there was no live telethon event, but it still raised 10.5 million. So what it does in the off years and alongside the live events is to piggyback onto existing programming. So for example, there've been special celebrity editions of popular shows like The Great British Bake Off. um, And that's been running recently. And it's, yeah, so it's taking shows that people like and giving them more of that with a fundraising ask thrown in. So as you say, it's kind of, it's about the content coming first and then being like, oh, by the way, it's for charity. Give some money. So it
1: definitely seems as though adaption is going to mean getting things much more diffuse. It becomes a campaign, a season of programming, events, content, participation opportunities, rather than one central night. Post-COVID, I wonder if we all might be more literate in this idea of accessing short live broadcast events or recordings of events that have been filmed previously. I mean, you know, if you think about the success of the National Theatre's broadcasts of some of its shows, for example, they were wildly popular. Um, People were willing to pay to experience something that they couldn't reach live and something that they might have otherwise missed out on. And maybe there will be the opportunity for charities to engage with that post-pandemic. And there's like a nice accessibility question around that as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And obviously during the pandemic, you know, the National Theatre were very much raising money for themselves because they needed yeah. it, you know. Um, but yeah, I wonder if if post-pandemic that idea could be harnessed. So those are, yeah, again, much shorter events, but there is still a platform where people are still willing to tune in live and stick around for a long period of time. Um, and so that's uh, live game streaming. And Emily, I think this is something you've dipped your toe into.
1: Not live streaming so much, but I, I've definitely lost hours of my life to to watching streams of people playing Legend of Zelda: Breath of the Wild
0: on the Nintendo Switch. It's an amazing game. Um, it, and, and what's the appeal of of watching somebody else play? Is it just that you get the stories without the kind of having to try and jump up a wall four times? In fact, like,
1: <laughs> part I think partly that, but also that there are. Um, elements of kind of I mean this game in particular it's an open world game so there are so many things that you can still learn that you never find out yourself and you can go and watch other people doing it and it's just like oh wow I'm explaining this really badly but (laughs) everyone kind of makes everyone makes that game their own there's a massive you know plot to it and all the rest of it for me I tend to spend most of my time actually playing the game riding horses and cooking (laughs) living the dream so it's quite nice to watch people actually yeah just trying to defeat the bosses and I'm just like oh I'm gonna make a special soup with these pumpkins that I've gathered somewhere up a mountain I don't know um (laughs) so um but but also a lot of these gamers are actually very funny as well so there's there's kind of there's a comedic element to it a lot of the time um it can be entertaining in just a, a not especially taxing way So a typical gaming live stream will allow the viewer to see the gamer's face and the game in real time. Um, And during a fundraising stream, the streamer completes a challenge such as playing for a set amount of time or doing a speed run where they try to complete a game as fast as possible. And all the while, they will be promoting the charity to their followers and urging them to donate. So... For example, the fastest Breath of the Wild speedrun I've seen it takes less than half an hour. It was around 28 minutes to complete, um, which is pretty incredible to me because it took me about a year to get to the final boss of the game, probably because I was cooking pumpkins up a mountain, you know, for most of it.
0: I mean, that, that, that does sound like the dream, right? I get to live up a mountain... Tame horses. Cook nice food and ride horses. Yeah, I mean, that's actually kind of my my, my perfect life.
1: And it's just, it is lovely to look at as well. I mean, visually, but I'm I'm getting distracted. But, yeah, so... <laughs> So during a live stream, gamers will hold auctions, they'll hand out prizes, and they will incentivize viewers to donate with different reward tiers. Uh, the streams often involve the host playing video games for hours on end. And it's a lucrative space to harness. The global gaming industry was worth $137.9 billion in 2018, according to the gaming analytics company Newzoo. In the UK alone, an estimated 37.3 million people are gamers. And the UK games industry generated £3.5 billion in 2018. So live streams on Twitch and YouTube have become the most common way for charities to harness the fundraising power of gaming, with Twitch estimating that more than $100 million was raised through the platform between its launch in 2011 and 2019. And again, we've got those instant payment options. So one really interesting example of a streaming event that had a massive reach was in January 2019, when a well-known YouTuber, Hbomberguy, real name Harry Brewis, had launched a live stream Twitch challenging himself to play Donkey Kong for 24 hours. Again, genius, just tapping into that 90s nostalgia. (laughs) Everyone remembers Donkey Kong on the Nintendo. Great game. Vintage, iconic. And he played it while encouraging viewers to donate to Mermaids, a charity that supports young transgender people. So the campaign went viral. It drew support from the likes of the Democratic congresswoman, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the singer and actor Cher, and the journalist, Owen Jones. AOC, for example, actually asked to be patched in and to appear on the live stream to show her support. So by the time Brewers completed the game, his stream had raised more than £275,000 for the charity. It's not the biggest amount of money, but for Mermaids, which is quite a small organisation, it was game-changing. It also raised a huge amount of awareness and helped to create support for trans rights issues, which is
0: also a huge part of what telethons do as well. Yeah, and the thing is with that one is that the charity didn't really know it was happening until it started. So they got involved and they spoke to Brewis and they offered him support on the day. But this event got planned and started and took off without any real effort on the charity's part. Um, and, you know, it used to be the case that if you wanted to reach millions of people, you needed a fully equipped TV studio and a partnership with a network. You needed people to come around the phone banks. You, you know, you would all of that. It was a huge and expensive undertaking. Um, now, what you need is a camera and an internet connection. Um, you know, in, in the most basic possible way, you could actually do it with your phone. Yes, okay, you can buy more equipment and make it look better. That's completely possible. But we are literally carrying the equipment for a telethon around in our pockets, which means there are so many more opportunities for the public to get involved and to be contributing their own content. And this might mean less control for the charities in the long term. And that might not actually be a bad thing. So one thing we've been hearing a lot over the last few years uh, with fundraising is uh, how charities need to start thinking of themselves as working in partnership with supporters to solve a problem. Um, And and that's sometimes going to be about allowing supporters to come up with ideas for content and then to manage it themselves. And then the charity's role becomes to curate that content and flag it up to other supporters rather than being seen to own it. So the fundraising consultant, Lisa Harwood, is really keen on this idea. Uh, You know, in the past, she's pointed to the Ice Bucket Challenge and even the Me Too movement as examples of campaigns that were started and very much owned by the public and then curated by charities and campaign bodies. Um, They weren't, people didn't sit around and have a focus group and decide to do these things. They sort of started spontaneously and took off. And I do think it might be possible to apply this logic to live broadcasting events, that you get these smaller, more diffuse events created by the public, which all have the potential to go viral and could raise significant sums of money, even if the central event actually pulls in less than it used to, or even actually if there is no central event. So going back to Stand Up To Cancer, they were supposed to have one of their their sort of on year for having the live television event was 2020. And in the end, they had to cancel it, but they still did um, a whole host of programming. And I'm not sure how much they raised, but you know, I think they still managed to, you know, it wasn't a complete dead loss for them. So maybe we have this, this um, central fundraising event as the kind of the center, central hub around which everything else kind of operates, or you don't have it at all. And it is this much more diffuse thing.
1: Right. So it might be that the massive on the night live event totals that we used to get will become a thing of the past. But there are still opportunities to create this connection, this focus on a cause and to generate funds. And I think it's going to be exciting to see what this looks like in the future.
0: Absolutely. And these were just some of our thoughts, some thoughts that we kind of um, cribbed off Twitter Tell us if we're wrong or tell us if your charity is doing something really interesting in this space. We'd be really, really keen to hear it because I think, like Emmy says, it's going to be really exciting to see what happens. I think there are lots of different directions it could go in. So, yes, do get in touch with us at Third Sector on Twitter. Let us know.
1: Each week we are bringing you a mini coronavirus care package, a good news story that we've spotted in the sector. What have we got, Rebecca?
0: Uh, So this week, uh, first up, we've got uh, the lovely story of nine-year-old Esme from Crawley Down. Um, So we've had quite a few kind of, yeah, kids getting involved in fundraising. I think that's a really, I think that's really lovely that that kind of, yeah, there there is no uh, upper or lower age limit to fundraising. Uh, So Esme has set herself the challenge of running 2.3 kilometres every day throughout May to raise funds for a local children's hospice, which is the Chestnut Tree House. Uh, She's been getting up at 7am every morning and going for a run with her dad before school and uh, she's oh. picked this distance because it's the distance of sort of the triangle of roads around where she lives so essentially she's running around the block for 2.3 kilometers every day um her mum naomi says uh, she isn't a keen runner so this is a big challenge for her which i i find mind-blowing i feel like i feel like we like i hear this all the time from people who do these amazing distances you know i was speaking to kathy dean who's the chief exec of save the rhino uk and she does ultra marathons yeah and she was like like, so she, she joined the charity, having never done a run before, save the Rhino UK, make a lot of money from from marathons. And she sort of said, well, I better run the London Marathon. So the following year, she ran the London Marathon. The year after that, she does the Marathon des Sables, which is um, basically six marathons in six consecutive days across the Sahara Desert in Morocco. And... Yeah, and and then at the end of the interview, she sort of says, oh yeah, I still don't love running, but you know, it's good.
1: It must be a mindset thing because I don't like running and so I just don't run. Yeah
0: yeah that is how i solve that problem um so yeah hats off to kathy dean hats off to esme for having a lot more um sort of uh, determination and willpower than i will ever possess i think esme said she chose this charity because she thought that they offer a really important service and she said they need so much money to fund it so i thought i could help them raise the money the children are safe there and it gives their carers a break so far, she's raised £165 and she's got a fundraising page at justgiving.com forward slash fundraising forward slash Naomi dash Teasdale 2. Teasdale is T-E-A-S-D-A-L-E and obviously Naomi's her mum's name. So yeah, if you fancy, fancy giving for that, and we'll put links in the show notes to that uh, into, under the news story on our website. Good luck, uh, Esme. Keep going. It's awesome. And we are in all. Wonderful, Esme. Keep on going. So next up, I've got one which I think is going to be quite close to your heart, Emily. Is it about a whale? It's not a whale. It isn't a whale. No, uh, it is It is about weddings. Oh, okay. Well, if it's weddings
1: and it's good news, then I'll take it. Hit me.
0: You can cope with it. You can cope with it. Okay. <laughs> it is good news. It's okay. Um, so um, this is the uh, teesdale based autism charity, Daisy Chain, ran a competition, basically it was a fundraising competition, and the winner would get... Effectively, their wedding paid for nice um they the package the package of prizes included um a wedding at Hardwick Hall uh, as their hotel venue with catering and an overnight stay with a bridal breakfast um so Hardwick Hall I used to go on school trips there. it's like this it proper like Tudor Castle, like I think um Bess of Hardwick Hall or Elizabeth was like the the lady there, and she was kind of you know a, a big deal in the Elizabethan court. Um, and yeah it's you've definitely seen this place like in like um period dramas tudor costume drama things you will have seen it um uh it's this impressive kind of tudor castle um and they kind of get a sort of choice of wedding date a wedding dress provided by the bridal factory outlet in north allerton the hair done grooms suits groomsman's suits wedding cars, photography flowers bridal nails and three-month couples gym membership as well afterwards which i it feels like getting your marriage off to a rocky start, but all right. Um, That is also, that's also included. Um, So yeah, so they had this, this was the prize. um, And basically the uh, couples had to raise money for charity, for the charity in order to have a chance of winning. So if you raised 500 quid, you got um, a place in the raffle. And uh, so a couple, Rebecca Baldwin and Sam Wagner, raised more than £1,600 for the charity, which qualified them for three tickets in the raffle. And their name was drawn out of the raffle. Um, A runners-up, Kayleigh Sterling and Anthony Murray, received a consolation prize of a stay at Ramside Hall's tree houses with spa access as well. Um, So also a nice prize. But yeah, uh, effectively, you had to raise as much money as possible for the charity uh, in order to maximise your chance of winning. In total, the charity raised uh, just over £4,000. Wonderful that's brilliant so yeah so nice one and yeah the stress of just all of that being sorted sounds really nice actually i have to say sure um, does having done the whole wedding planning thing <laughs> i so, hope it's yes. able to go ahead stress-free and it's a wonderful day yeah it's not until 2022 so best of luck to rebecca and sam
1: that's that's nice that's a good amount of in. okay
0: good luck rebecca and sam and also good luck to anybody anyone at all who might be having a wedding sooner it will be fantastic and you'll have a fantastic time it will be lovely sure i hope so
1: We'll be back with another episode soon, so make sure you subscribe to this, The Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Until then, I'm Emily Burt. And I'm Rebecca Cooney. And our producer is Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio. We will see you next week.